In the previous book in this series, our guest today observed the experiences of leaders on a roller coaster ride through their professional and personal lives. Now he follows them down the rabbit hole into the unknown, where, like Lewis Carroll's Alice, they find a dystopian wonderland in which everyone seems to have gone mad and life functions according to its own crazy logic. The first part of the book looks at the psychodynamics of leadership in both a business and political context. The second focuses on the psychopathology of everyday life in organizations and the seemingly endless ways people can make a mess of things. In short, sharp nuggets, our guest helps us make sense of how madness of the present has affected leadership of organizations and the workplace. It's a great honor to welcome one of the world's renowned authorities on leadership and a prolific author. We welcome the author of Down the Rabbit Hole of Leadership, Leadership Pathology in Everyday Life, Manfred Ketz the Fries. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, I'm going to start with this beautiful part. You say Alice's Adventure in Wonderland has been a much loved novel since its publication in 1865. It's fantasy and nonsense popular with children and adults alike. However, there is much more to the story than we initially think. Falling down the rabbit hole can be interpreted as a metaphor for entry into the unknown. And you use it as a metaphor for leadership tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'd love if you'd tell us a little bit about this metaphor that you use. First place, uh, I always say everybody is normal until you know them better. I also have been in praise of a certain amount of craziness, of course, it's always a question of degree. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wear two hats. One hat is, uh, I always make the comment, I combined the dismal science, which was Keynes' description of the economist. And I was once upon a time an economist um, with the impossible profession, which was Freud's description of being a psychoanalyst. So I ended up being very poorly in both of them. I mean, I'm, that, uh, I mean, I'm a terrible psychoanalyst in a way because I'm not a very religious, ideological psychoanalyst. I do anything in my work that works. And uh, you know, I was, of course, influenced by, if you, if you go through psychoanalytic training, uh, you have to read at one, you know, during the course of the training, which is extremely long. That's the reason so few people do it, are crazy enough to take it um, for its work, collected works, which are quite, uh, quite a number of volumes. And one, of course, the psychopathology of everyday life is one of his books. And I, I, uh, I, I have, have, in a way, had a traditional academic career in which you have to write uh, the famous papers for eight journals, which you read, the editor reads, and your mother reads. That's usually <laughs> the end of reading. Then for uh, some time, I was asked to be a columnist writer for a Dutch, major Dutch newspaper. I'm originally Dutch. Although I wrote it in English, I must say, because I write easier in English at this point in time, and they were translated. And what it did was it uh, it forced me uh, to write in a somewhat clearer way because most academic writers, it's a lot of psychobabble. And I, I, one thing I learned as a psychoanalyst is to talk the language of your patient, of the client, patient, whatever. So how to, and that's probably what I'm, uh, people tell me at least, I mean, I don't necessarily know that, but I think, I think I'm a good synthesizer and I'm good in presenting complex ideas in a simplistic way. So I can explain it to children what I'm trying to do. And um, I've written many books, too many actually, because uh, 
Um, book writing is quite important to me. And I discovered actually during the pandemic, I had this Boldino Auto moment. And of course, you don't know what Boldino Auto moment is. But, uh, it, um, it comes from Pushkin. And Pushkin uh, wanted to get married. That happens in life. And, uh, and, and uh, friends said, and he had a little estate called Boldino, which was far away from Moscow. And he wanted to go there to arrange everything. And his friends said, don't do this, don't do this, not a good idea. Of course, he didn't listen. And off he went to that place. And when he was there, he discovered, or he was already, there was a cholera epidemic. And so like the pandemic, he was not allowed to travel. You know all about it. He was stuck. Actually, and it was actually very good for him because uh, in those days, and still it's the case in Russia, you have censors. And he was lucky. He got his prime sense of the Tsar, you know, really personal interest. But the Tsar was now far away. So that was the most political moment. And coming back to your comment about the rabbit hole book, during the pandemic, it's now a little bit more than one year, I've written six books, which is completely nuts. And <laughs> it reminds because every morning, I mean, I hear on my little mountain, uh, every morning I get up very early and write for a number of hours, which makes me feel good. And then I putter around and do other things, have a walk, uh, uh, feed the wild boar. I have wild boar in the garden somewhere and do other crazy, crazy things. Uh, and then you couldn't do anything because you were completely locked up. So the rabbit hole, uh, which uh, is about the psychopathology of everyday life in organizations, was, uh, and in particular, of course, interested in leadership. And I got extremely irritated about the craziness of the Trump era, which is still continuing, the Trump code. So the book is very much colored by that. But I wrote another book called The CEO Whisper, which, which is part of my role. I, I run once a year. And at the moment, it's stuck because even though my uh, my deans are trying to pressure me, I don't want to do it on Zoom. I can give lectures on Zoom for 100, 1,000. I've done some 20,000 people. But that kind of program, I try to create tipping points because people come for four weeks, not in a row, by the way, over a year. Yeah, you don't talk about the weather. That becomes, you have too much other things to do. So you have to talk about serious things. And and, you know, and it's really a paradox because I'm a product of the Harvard Business School. As a result, I've written many case studies. I mean, case studies are there, the, the high priests of case studies. But I know, I mean, if you write a case study, you engage in self-censorship. And on, because you know that the final cut is done by the one who the case study is about. So you get all those hagiographies. I see it all the time. And I have done it myself. And actually, some case studies I had to stop because the person wanted a hagiography and I, I went, you yeah. know. I felt the whole the nerve was taken out of the case. But in the case of this workshop where I used the life case study, people, I mean, if you don't talk about anything, nothing happens. So you talk about things. And so that has been a fantastic laboratory for my work. And a lot of the psychopathology, apart from doing consulting and coaching or whatever, but it has been, uh, as, and, and I guess one thing I have as an advantage because I have two heads, which is maybe a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, coach, consultant. So I'm not very religious. You know, you have all those, I wrote once an article called Coaching BS. Everybody in the kitchen sink is a coach and they have all those, they start to differentiate themselves uh, with um, uh, whatever, you know, master coaches and whatever it might be. And then you have behavioral coaches, skill coaches, career coaches, life coaches. I mean, you name it, I get quite tired of it. I, I, I'm completely... Uh, you know, I'm reliable. I do anything. I do anything that works. 
I stand on my head to get people moving. I don't move. I don't movement. So I use I use lots of probably indirectly probably some theoretical concept, which I'm quite influenced probably. I mean, I can't help it by psychodynamics, psychodynamic systemic theory. I'm interested by neurological theory and of course evolutionary theory. And of course, developmental psychology is very important to me. And that all mixed up. And so I use what I sometimes call the clinical paradigm and coming back to the rabbit hole uh, and also the Sherlock Holmes thing, I have to play a little bit Sherlock Holmes. Now, what you see is not what you get and you have to make sense out of it. I just had just before I had a session with an executive and tried to make sense about some of the themes. And of course, in psychodynamic therapy, the the role of transference becomes very important, you know, which basically means no relationship is a new relationship, all relationships are colored by previous relationship. So you had a very autocratic father. You meet somebody, you remind you of your father, off you go. You go off to off into that rabbit hole. And and so I have to explain to people like that uh, what was the issue when you were 10 years old might not be an issue when you were 50. Maybe uh, you can you know, accept certain things and behave in a different manner. And it takes time, by the way, the nomadic. We just talked about you know, what people like in articles, to do versus to be. And that's one of the problems I have because, um, for example, I tell people if they come to my course to become a charismatic transformation leader, now go somewhere else. And anybody who promises you that is a snake oil salesman. But if you want to learn more about yourself, and learn why you behave in certain ways and also realize why you behave sometimes in maladaptive ways and start with something differently, you might become a better leader. And usually when you talk about uh, leadership, uh, you know, I've studied that for so many years, uh, many derail. I mean, uh, I'm just writing an article on the seven sins, the seven capital, seven deadly sins. Of course, you know the seven deadly sins? Absolutely. I've done them all. <laughs> I hope so, because you practice them in a way everybody practices all the time. It's a question of, uh, of uh, degree. It's, of course, lust. You have lust. You have sloth, gluttony, envy, greed. And I think the, uh, the most uh, dramatic one is pride, which, of course, is related to leadership and the word hubris. And... and I think there was 640 years BC, there was a gentleman, one of the Greek philosophers, who was asked what is the most difficult thing in the world. And he said, know thyself. It's also written about above the temple of Apollo in ancient tales. So uh, actually it was the easiest sometimes to give advice, which is not a, which consultants may not like. But to, uh, And so many leaders uh, self-destruct. They suffer from hubris. And of course, you can say, you know, is the person is a nature or nurture and all these kinds of things. Uh, of course, if there is not a big chunk of, of nurture, why bother what we do? Why bother to be a culture? It's all predetermined. If, you know, so, so that's, of course, uh, I've written on psychopathy. And uh, of course, there are lots of neurologists make comments about the psychopathic gene and things like that. But still, uh, if you take identical twins and would treat one very different than the other, you might even you know, modify some of their behavior. But anyhow, so one is, of course, that uh, leaders derail, uh, which is also very interesting when you look at leaders. They don't know the people they work for and they work with. They have no idea. That's one of the things that always happens after the first module. 
that they start to have some meaningful conversation with the people because they have no sense. We have the fantasy that people think like we think. Uh-uh, people think differently. And then, of course, I spent a lot of energy. It's kind of interesting when I look at my career, you know, my somewhat portfolio career from economist, psychoanalyst, management professor. And then I became the head of, uh, I was also actually an organizational pathologist. And it was kind of, the class was half empty <laughs> uh, all the time. I looked at, I wrote this book 100 years ago called The Neurotic Organization, which had some effect about where I tried to make a connection between leadership style and organizational culture, strategy making. And, but I, at one point in time, I was asked by the then dean at my school, INSEAD, to uh, set up a leadership center. And so I had to take pretty good material and make them even better. At the same time, I, was, I started a uh, program, which is now a master's degree program, on executive ch- on change, change management. This was actually called Consulting and Coaching for Change originally. So it gave me a little bit of a different lens. And, uh, and I think at this point in time, uh, partially induced by the pandemic and irritated about uh, uh, the, the modern weapons of mass destruction, which is the social media, uh, toxic leadership, I become a little bit more of a business philosopher. And I think the book you read is already a sign in that direction. And the books I, read, I wrote afterwards, uh, like the CEO Whisperer, I wrote a book on the coronavirus, which I wrote last year, which my only ebook, because I know in publishers it takes too long. By the time it could have been outdated. <laughs> so that was, uh, then uh, I wrote the book. Uh, I, I was waiting for the editing of the book, the CEO Whisperer, and I wrote a book which people seem to like. I wrote it in a month. It's called Covadis, not very original title, uh, but it really, what I struggle with there, now what do people do, coming back to your comment about to be, uh, they're looking for meaning. And of course, the reason we look for meaning, sorry about my babbling along. Huh? No, oh, please, please. Uh, ba- I, I can babble for a long time, must be my uh, please do. professorial narcissism or so. <laughs> please do. Meaning, we all have in the cloud, what you call this, the stealth our stealth motivator is death. And death focuses, it brings us focus. Without death, there's no focus. So we wonder, you know, there's always the question, what, how do you want to be remembered? You know, what are people going to say at your funeral or whatever, if you care about that? And you don't want to be the richest person in the graveyard, that kind of thing, which I tell some of the rich clients I have to do something more with their, their money. So when you dissect meaning, if you think it as in the middle of a uh, circle, and you have one thing is a sense of purpose, which is, by the way, purpose and meaning is different in a way, at least in my definition. Purpose is future-oriented. You want to do something with your life. You want to accomplish something. So purpose. Then also, I think a major factor in meaning, and I used to be quite influenced by a book uh, by a man called Robert White called Life's in Progress. You probably never read it, but uh, it was uh, based on a study done at Harvard with sophomores which started in 1938. It's the longest longitudinal study about people's lives. Only men, by the way, it's only men. There were no women allowed at the time in, that, in Harvard College. And it has now, it has, I think it has now a third director. Uh, this Harvard was a famous study. I listened actually to a speech by the last director. It was at, I went to an alumni session. I went, I was so crazy to go to alumni 
uh, at Harvard. So I went there, which is a depressing thing because you see how people age, which is not always in the best way. Um, but the major thing they picked up was belonging. And if the, the, if the, the importance of having good relationship with friends and family members, which also makes you live longer. It's very important. It's a stress reducing effect. And that's, I, in my work, I put a lot of emphasis on it. Basically, at work, and, and I mean, I talked about the person just now about also his relationships with uh, partners and things like that, and how he could improve that, and children. So that's the second one. The other one has to do with, and that has been a big peeve of mine, it has to be choice. I, 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 uh, at my first university before Harvard was University of Amsterdam. And I must say that the education at the time was not exactly glorious. Actually, I spent most of my time not at the university, uh, trying to study people sitting in coffee houses. That was uh, all of my interest in organizational behavior and whatever uh, came to the fore because they were not very original in pedagogically. Uh, but anyway, I decided I have not been back there for 50 years. How would it be like to give a talk there? So I wrote a note to the rector Magnificus, which is the president of the university. I said, dear so-and-so, I never volunteer, actually. People usually come to me. And, and so uh, this time I volunteered and said, I would like to give a talk. And said, and obviously, it was no problem because you wrote me back to dear Manfred. I was your student. You might have forgotten. And the dean of the faculty you were is also your student. I talk about uh, coincidence. Yeah. So there I was. And I was uh, thinking, if I would, you know, if I would have psycho and, and think about the cohort of my class, what happened to them? Many are dead. Many of them made extremely bad choices about partners. They made very bad choices about career. And if they would have psychology 101, would have been a little better in it. So in my school, probably the most coaching oriented school business school in the world and uh, and the only group which had any coaching was of course the mba students because it's such a large group and it's very expensive but now everybody has coaching so that's good and i've been in, uh, when i became the director of the global leadership center at INSEAD. Um, so now coaching is in the dna of the school which resulted also that leadership center i i set up doesn't exist anymore because I felt it was not needed anymore. It's not part why, why, why. Yeah, that's another story. But uh, so the other the other factor in that meaning thing, the sense of control, control about the ability to make the right choices. Of course, we don't do so well. I mean, you look at the divorce rate and uh, etc. The uh, the fourth one is uh, also uh, you know what are you good at? You are a sportsman. You know, I'm not, I've never been a good sportsman. I've never been good with my body. I mean, I'm not bad. I can climb a mountain, although I'm getting older now and I, I realize that I cannot run up mountains anymore. That's over. So you can chase wild boar. <laughs> wild boar is relatively easy. Yeah, yeah, that's easy. But, uh, uh, and, and my, I, actually, I once must admit, uh, the wild boars were bulldozed in my garden and, to the great disgust of my wife, so I finally took care of it. Uh, but barbecue boar, 
not my favorite meat, that's to be honest. And my and also you have the after effect of the wild boar exercise, meaning somebody has to cut it up. That means yours truly. And uh, that was not exactly, yeah. uh, I mean, it's not exactly what I get quite excited about. That's not, uh, I know. No, it's, it's uh, I'm shooting you the boar in your pajama. Uh, and then, at three o'clock in the morning, and yeah. going into the the rest of the the, the deconstruction basis is not my. Uh, no, no, I guess it's funny. I had this uh, to free associate. I was asked to do this lunch with the FT, yeah, and, uh, which I felt was highly unusual because usually I had politicians and artists. So I don't know why a management professor I must be the first got the luck. And this this guy uh, had probably done quite some research about me. And he kept on hanging on two things. One was wild boar hunting, which is a very complex, I mean, what that hunting is a very complex. I mean, I like nature. I without I mean, I'm a great believer in ecotherapy. And uh, I think it's we need it. We are still actually all the primitive human beings, Homo sapiens, all the primers in that respect. And the other thing has to do, um, again, I'm free associating with the origin of my uh, concern about leadership, particularly bad leadership. And it really has to do, and I once did a TED talk, which I was trying to uh, explain that, that my grandfather and my mother hit lots of people during the war. And I don't know how my grandfather did it because I later went to this little farmhouse, which he lived in, background shows are not a big deal, and how he could hide 12, 13 people there. We talk about the pandemic and being locked up. Think about it, five years being locked up. And, but, and, and and if you don't, I mean, of course, the pandemic, you can die too of the virus, but there, you had all the time, uh, you know, the Nazis running around and they pick you up. Amen. Amen. So it was, uh, but I also remember as a memory that there was no television in those days. That was my grandfather. I was listening to the uh, the, the radio and Nuremberg trials of, the, of these war criminals. And, and I think that as a kid, as a small kid, that really had enormous impact on me on what bad leadership can do. And that is probably the motivating force. Where, and that's the reason I got so, we come back to that book you mentioned down the rabbit hole, that I wrote, on Tom, actually I wrote another book called, which is now being edited, called Leadership. Uh, no, no, that's being published now. Leadership Unhinged. And there's an enormous article, part of it is Trump. I mean, I try to uh, make sense of Trumpian thinking. Uh, and, and the next one is Bolsonaro, another hero of mine in, in Brazil, another one of those. I mean, real men don't wear masks. They don't cower behind masks. Of course, if you have invents, invincible, and, you know, invisible enemies like a pandemic or global warming, you know, that's not, you like that. Real men fight other real men. So it might say something as many people have said about what kind of leadership do we need for the future? Is this the kind of leadership, this testosterone-driven leadership, do we need that? And I mean, as we know, except the lady in Hong Kong, uh, female leaders have done better during the pandemic. Also, the lady of Hong Kong is a marvel in rationalization. I saw her just on the BBC a few days ago and explaining why all those people are being locked up, deserve it and things like that. But that's another story. So we have now, I have not mentioned four. The sense of competence. I was talking about physical intelligence. I mean, you are, you are you must have lots of physical intelligence that you were able to uh, play sports quite well. Uh, I, I did some soccer, that was about it, but not very, oh, well, it was some moments which I enjoyed it. No question about it. And I've climbed, 
I mean, very high mountains, 5,000 meters high. Uh, but uh, I can tell you, uh, it's not not for the faint of heart because you have no oxygen. So you, your breathing becomes quite... Uh, and and then, when you, then you have other forms of intelligence. So what I'm trying to say is, you try to figure out, you know, what are you good at? You know, when you think about your own career, you know, you know what, what are you good at? What makes you feel alive? And I guess we share something, uh, understand. I see myself always as the insultant, not the consultant, the insultant. I'm the fool. I come to organizations. I also, I mean, somebody was saying it just now, who says, I have recently said, the only period, yesterday I was uh, having lunch in, uh, in uh, somewhere at the, co the coast. And said, you know, you're the only person who gave a course on leadership in cartoons. And I think the reason I did it, because I had to get those very serious executives to giggle about themselves so I could shove it to them. What is what they're doing wrong? So that's I, uh, some word in the French language, which nobody knows really. It's called morosove. And uh, some of my uh, people I worked with writing a, wrote an article about me in which they called it playing the morals. So meaning the, it's the, the fool of King Lear. Trying to, trying, of course, they finally, as you might discover, you get fired. As, uh, that's finally, they cannot many cannot handle it after that. Although I don't mind getting fired. I was just telling it to a client this morning. I, I don't like with my client dependency relationships. I, th I think they should be able to walk on their own feet. So I am willing to par participate in whatever they want from me in a limited amount of time. And then my re the return on investment goes down rapidly. And it's better. And you can always call me later or whatever and talk to me at lunch with me, but do your own thing. The fifth one is more glorious and maybe more relevant these days, which is sense of transcendence. I always got extremely irritated by my colleagues in finance who talked about shareholder value. And as you all know, we can manipulate it any way we, it's very easy to manipulate. And uh, it's, of course, it has to happen. Uh, and then you have something called the tragedy of the commons. Have you heard of that? Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's the selfishness about just, if I, I take the last fish out of the ocean before somebody else takes the fish. So that's, uh, and, uh, it's a shared resource. So transcendence has to do with the ability to go beyond your own personal concerns. And in general, if you look at studies again, it's, it sounds like taking is better. It's not true. Giving is better. You feel better. It's, uh, there's something to be said that actually the altruistic motive is extremely <laughs> selfish in many ways because you help yourself that way. Giving is good for you. And uh, you know, to express gratitude is good for you. To do things... For others, and uh, I mean, I come from a low context language, a language country, and we are not always good in expressing gratitude. And I guess I learned more about that because of my wife, who is Swedish, who was much, much better in that. But it's it's a good thing to do. And at this stage in my life, I get, you know, I got a funny uh, story to tell you. Uh, last year, in the, in the, when the pandemic started, I got a note from one of my students who, it's quite well known, actually, who said, you know, thanks to the seminar, you know, a little bit late, feedback 12 years later, 15 years later, I would like it a little bit early, you know, it gets better. But it's at least when you get it then, they mean it. Uh, you know, thanks to the seminar, I become more courageous. He was not a very courageous person. As a result, I'm not firing anybody. 
I'm not firing my suppliers. I'm taking an enormous salary cut and the whole executive team is going to do that. And I'm going to collect PPEs for the local hospitals. Ta-da! I was actually very proud of him. Wow. So, so those are the, those are the five things which, of course, are not in that book you were mentioning, because that's the that's the psychopathology of everyday life. And the way I write very often is that you or other people ask me questions and they have no idea. And I have no idea how to answer it. And you, I mean, you have a fairly complex mind looking at the notes you send me. So and then, but and so then I'm. It's like in my class. You know, a person makes a presentation about their life. It's like a movie. So you're, you're a documentary. So what kind of scenes are you going to present? And I listen to it and said, what is going on? <laughs> don't make any sense out of it. Of course, part of it is, is the problem is what's not being said. Because they don't want to say everything. You know, it's, tell me everything. Forget it. Nobody's going to tell you everything. So what is left out? So that's already one thing. But then I so the concept... I think it comes from Yeats, uh, as a poet, uh, negative capability, the ability to hold your confusion. That's, uh, and it's not easy, but I know that eventually my class will help me out. That's the reason I'm a great believer in team coaching. Team coaching, I mean, nothing about you know, one-to-one coaching. Great. But team coaching, you get more bang for the buck. It's, uh, you know, you get, uh, you, you, you create, it's easier to create tipping points. And at this stage in my life, when I do something, I, uh, I want to have an effect. I have now an issue with my, one of my deans. I have stopped my leadership program. I can, as I said, give lectures to lots of people, that's my problem. Uh, but to do this very delicate program, I want to be three-dimensional. And also hybrid doesn't work because people keep on staring at the screen. And so I guess I have to have an, uh, or I have to, explain that more carefully to him. This is extremely experiential. People deal with very difficult issues. And of course you can do something, but that's what not they came for. And on top of that, they already had another module, so they know how it feels normally. So forget, I mean, if you have the whole program, so this is going to be online, fine, fine, it's possible. But uh, so I, uh, a lot of the work of change is, you know, when you talk about working through, you get an idea, a person tells you something, and you say, it's not true, not true, uh, it's not true. But then you start to think about it. Maybe you had a point. You work it gradually through and start to experiment. Maybe I should behave a little bit differently in these situations. And that's uh, and so that's the reason uh, the quick fix doesn't work. As you're coming back to, uh, you know, uh, your, uh, to be as opposed to to do. I mean, I can give people some, and I do that too. I, said, I give people homework sometimes. I said, I want you to do homework. I gave some homework to a gentleman who um, uh, had a very difficult time with one family member. Because, uh, so I told him, next time you meet this family member at a family occasion, make an effort, surprise them, surprise yourself. Do some small talk, because that's important. I mean, small talk, I mean, it's the very often, I had once an executive uh, who, was in, who was a candidate for becoming CEO of a very large company. The problem was he was too smart. He was too, too intelligent, but not wise, which is different between the two. I mean, I, I made a comment this week about trying to explain intelligence, knowledge, vis-a-vis wisdom. 
And said, if you, you know, in being being intelligent and knowledgeable is that you know how to put the Kalashnikov together. Wisdom is when to shoot it. Yeah. Which is a terrible example, actually. But I think <laughs> it's, very, it's very demonstrative what it means. Yeah. So the wisdom about it, that you have some judgment, that you know when to use it, use judgment and and some also the whole issue of the words of empathy and compassion you know, that they also play a role. But uh, anyhow, that's uh, I, I have already had a monologue for a long time. I had actually, interestingly enough, I, I did a thing for the Canadian uh, Academy of Management, and the interviewer didn't realize that I was looking at the back of his hair. <laughs> and he and I told him that, but he was actually anxious because he was organizing it for this large is online, it was live, and he didn't hear it. So I talked for an hour and a half to the back of some hair on the back of his head. And I must say, to pet myself up for an hour and a half, <laughs> at least you smile friendly. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. And, you know, the, the title even, Manfred, I it jumped out at me. Our listeners are constantly listening to me going, let's go down a rabbit hole on this and that, etc. So the, the title totally jumped out, jumped out to me. And I love I'm going to come back to a few things you said. I, I love your writing style. I think, you know, I mentioned to you before we came on the the empathy for the reader is huge. Your empathy for the reader to put it into, as you say, synthesized complex knowledge into simple language is a real skill. And I love the way you start with an example of an executive, then give some theory and then end with a, a nice fable or an anecdote. I, I love that style. And they're all in essays. They can be read in any in any uh, way forward or backwards, etc. As somebody said, you I have it in the bas in bathroom. Uh, every time we go to the bathroom, I read one of the other articles. <laughs> <laughs> and and watch the, you can open watch the book the anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they watch the I hope they watch the book. Yeah, yeah. But um so I, I wanted to share a couple of things. One, you mentioned Morisov, and that will escape many of our listeners. They won't know the term. You mentioned the fool. That may be taken out of context. I re it really, really resonated with me, that one. And you might have easily exchanged the executive you talk about here, whose name was Andrew, for Aiden. <laughs> you, uh, I'll quote this, and perhaps you'll expand on this idea, because I think it's such an important one, which is the idea of bringing a sense of humor into the workplace, not from actually wanting to be a fool, but actually be able to cover complex or often challenging conversations. I'll, I'll read the little excerpt about Andrew, the executive you talk about. Andrew was an enigma. His behavior was untraditional, to say the least. It was difficult to figure out what he was all about, whether he was serious or just clowning around. You never knew what to expect from him. Some thought that he was a real pain in the neck. Many felt his mocking behavior and bad jokes were over the top. It was clear that Aiden, I mean Andrew, loved playing the fool. <laughs> he liked to challenge the status quo and play the disgruntled contrarian. He was always prepared to think the unthinkable, say the unsayable, and do the undoable. He was a virtuoso at making seemingly naive, foolish questions. Yet, there was often a lot of wisdom in what Andrew had to say, and his questions were often difficult to answer. His role was devil's advocate. He used many methods such as irony, sarcasm, humor to convey difficult messages, which usually led to creative dialogue. It challenged others thinking and logic. So they ended up considering creative solutions that wouldn't have entered their mind otherwise. 
Now, many of our listeners are change makers or heads of innovation or, or transformative change makers within organizations or even C-suite executives. And many will play that role. And oftentimes, when you do that, which I've done, it gets you in serious trouble. It actually is not great for your career sometimes, because if the tide changes suddenly, and the mood of the organization shifts, the Andrews or the Aidens or the Manfreds often come under pressure. I'd love you to share a little bit about this, because I thought this was a key message. I, I think, uh, as you said, you can uh, replace it for Aiden and or for my, myself. I mean, I'm uh, certainly played that role. I have used, uh, I use a lot of humor. Uh, I mean, I, you have a list of defenses. And when you talk about difficult people, they usually use the most primitive defenses, which is like you saw with uh, Trump. It's, it's splitting. You know, the world has black and white cowboy hats. And of course, behind the group of the white cowboy hats. It's, 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 it's uh, denial, it's not me, it's somebody else in projection, those are very primitive defenses. The most sophisticated ones, of course, are one of them is intellectualization, also humor. Although British humor, I mean, you're not British, uh, I once uh, had the honor of, I think, running and being a facilitator for senior civil servants on all Ox, Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge. And of course, I was completely out of it because I don't have that... But the venom, the venom of some of the humor was, you know, those were on the, um, there was not, uh, but humor is a very good glue to get people going. And of course, I make mistakes. Also, uh, in humor, I have to be very conscious since I don't work in one country, because some humor is very culture specific. What works uh, in, in, in Ireland may not work in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, so I have to be, uh, what are some of some more universal patterns which people can, and of course, what always helps is also the element of uh, presenting yourself somewhat vulnerable, uh, which is important uh, because if you want to create also in team coaching, uh, now when I run, uh, run around my leadership seminar, I only take one person per company because of confidentiality reasons. But in, uh, I got once a request from uh, a gentleman who said, listen, uh, I like the program and it was very useful for me. I would like everybody else to have it. But given that you only take one person a year, it will take seven years. Can we do it all together? So, no, 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 no. So finally, I started to experiment with that and it works very well. It has become kind of the tools. Also, the consulting firm, I am some of the honorary chairman of uh, that's, I think, one of we are probably we are uh, their second. I'm not we. I mean, their second to none in team team coaching. Uh, but you have to. Uh, I mean, you learn to play. I mean, uh, also in the team team coaching is much more complicated because so many people are there. And I play sometimes. I play with them games. You now imagine, I don't know if you would be an animal. What animal would you be? And think, <laughs> think about it. An eagle, I, I, I always used to dream about uh, being an eagle flying over like okay. Nevada or something. I don't know. When I was a kid, I always used to have that dream. That's great that you know what you want. But I mean, how do other people perceive you? Do you see as a giraffe? A lone wolf. Oh. Yeah. Okay. A wolf. <laughs> a boar. A boar. A boar. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I had once, I was once in South Africa and I did it with an executive ward of a bank. And one person, I had no idea, but I mean, they're very good in there because they know what's going on. So that a fish called shrike. Have you heard of a fish called shrike? It's a little bird 
which has this is the Vlati impaler of the bird world. So it kills another bird, smaller, usually smaller, and hangs it up high and dry to attract the uh, other species. I mean, wow. to be called by one member of your executive team uh, to be a fiscal shrike, I guess I didn't know it completely. You cannot interpret as a somewhat hostile act, I think. It's not a friendly. What I'm trying to say is a little bit like the Bloomsbury group used to do, you know, playing, playing vegetable. If you would be a vegetable, would you be a tomato or asparagus? Would you be whatever? Uh, beet, you know, that kind of thing. And why? That's the question. Why? So what I do is I try to create a playful atmosphere and, and in the team coach. And of course, what I do is I had out of uh, desperation, out of you know, re protective reaction, and I'm not a good statistician, but I became a psychometrician. I developed uh, a whole slew at the time when I was uh, the director of the Global Leadership of 360 psychometric instruments. Of course, I didn't do it alone. I, I teamed up with the best psychometrician in France and were holy man, uh, because he was, I was trying to maybe something of shortcuts, but no, no, that didn't work. And so I needed it because to give my coaches a running start that they had some material because, I mean, I didn't have the luxury of so much time because coaching is expensive for, I mean, we talk about programs at business schools. So that was, that was quite helpful. And then, of course, um, when you are in a team and there are the results and said, are you willing to share your results? And sometimes the results are not so glorious. And the people who have given you the results are sitting there also in the room. So as a facilitator, you are in a dilemma. Because if you, you know, people, you know, you need seven positive or something like that for one negative. And sometimes it's hopeless. When you look at some of the results, it's, although I remember once, a long time ago, I had one, uh, and it was so bad. I said, my God, I mean, how am I going to do this? Actually, when I finally decided, okay, I have the guts to show to the rest, and he started to laugh. That's me. He said, that's me. <laughs> and I'm good in a few things, but the rest thing, I'm just, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. Uh, anyhow, the thing is, you don't have to put on the blackboard or whatever, on, on the computer or the screen, you know, the famous curves. You get curves and things like that. You're great in emotional intelligence. You're terrible in team building. You're terrible coach, a visionary, whatever it might be. They know it when they see it. The thing is, it becomes more interesting, I discovered. I did his work with a well-known uh, premier strategic consulting firm. That's where I really practice it, a well-known investment bank, um, to say, okay, tell your story. And that's very important. Tell your story. Why, you know, you come from Cyprus, and now you're a director of this glorious consulting firm. How did you do it? What happened? What went wrong? And people love telling stories. I mean, that's what we've done since Paleolithic times. Stories at the campfire. And so what are you going to talk about? And so that makes people more human. And so slowly, the team becomes a team. I mean, I, uh, I've said so many situations, and a person would call me, I said, I have, a, I, have, I, have, I have a nightmare, nightmare team. And I have a, I have, we have some very difficult transformational efforts to make. Please help me. How to get them to sing from, from the same hymn sheet, you know, at least something, some, some again, same direction. And their team coaching can be, because basically the end of the road, if the facilitator does his, does his or her job right, is that the, the people make contact with each other. And so, and also they start to understand why a person is behaving the way he or she does. 
Actually, I made once a video clip because it's you know it's not easy, as you probably know, to when you work quite experientially to explain what you're doing. It's a different media. So I hired, I wrote a script, which is a real script after what I experienced, but of course I couldn't film it. Uh, you know, I put a camera when I had to meet it. So I, I hired a number of actors and they the actors felt. And, and it was a, one of them was a mic, micromanager, micromanager executive. Uh, and one was, uh, was in some phone call there, which I, I did. Know, that's my friend's executive, and one was uh, an, an, the chief knowledge officer who was a disaster as far as organization was concerned. And so they got the message. And they, 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 I, mean, I mean, let's not, uh, not expect dramatic change, but uh, he learned, the chief knowledge officer, that he should probably have some people around him to organize it. He was never going to be uh, you know, uh, obsessional character being but he started to realize what negative effect he had on the rest of the organization while the ceo who was too detail oriented started to realize that he had to create more playfulness in the company to get the best out of the people and, and make them more creative so that's the reason i've been an, uh, i guess i'm probably one of the pioneers of team coaching that has been uh, uh that's one of the strengths i shared with you that i i shared an excerpt on linkedin and I, I started looking at the the different characters, so the darker side of leadership that you talk about in the book. And I thought it was interesting because you mentioned Trump earlier on in the Trumpian era, and also psychopaths. My my understanding is they're one percent of the population, fifty percent of that one percent, so a half percent are in prison. The other half run organizations, so they're everywhere. They're special financial organizations, apparently. Wow. <laughs> But there was a really interesting thing you mentioned here. I'm just going to look for it in my notes because you mentioned about dictators and you mentioned Adolf Hitler, of, of, of course, and you said that dictators leverage a number of social processes and dynamics to gain influence and followership. First, they are extremely talented at inflaming wish to believe. Their cries of patriotism and righteousness mirror the message that the populace wants to hear. And people's unquestioning acceptance of a dictator's rhetoric is rooted in humankind's pervasive bias, that of confirmation bias. I thought that was interesting because the leaders we elect are almost a mirror of the zeitgeist of society or, or how we're thinking. And, and, I, and I saw this a lot when Trump was elected, I'm sure you did too, that a lot of people were like, great, now we have somebody who's going to make a change, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But then we discovered it was all playing to what people wanted to hear. I'd love your thoughts on that. Because this happens in organisations, this happens at leadership level in any aspect of life. I think your comment about zeitgeist, to use that German word. And in Germany at the time, they talked about das gesundes Volksempfinden, the healthy experience of the population. And Trump, uh, probably because of the work he did in development, uh, you know, in construction, uh, was quite uh, attuned to what white uneducated males experienced. And so, uh, I mean, he, would, he said at one point in time that I love uneducated people. And uh, that's, of course, one of the, as we know, the problem because it's so... When you come back to the wish to believe, it's easy to sway people. I mean, I've been, I, I, I used to, when I, in the beginning of my career as a teacher, I used to 
you sometimes a film called uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, a, it's actually it's an impressive historical document called Triumph of the Will by Leni Riefenstahl. Oh, really old, the really old movie. It's on YouTube, actually. It's horrible. Yeah, it is. Like, it's oh, a, horrible. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's the best propaganda movie. It's a model of the propaganda movie. Of course, Marseille was famous, influenced by Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda. And you see the use of symbolism and things like that and, uh, and sect formation. And of course, uh, you know, I was ma making the comment in my, uh, uh, that was in the book is coming, the leadership and hinge where also Trump is playing a role, that psychopaths cannot lose. And a man can, like Trump, who has been conditioned by his father, Fred, uh, never to lose. The world consists of two kinds of people, winners and losers, and never, never be a loser like his older brother, who uh, died as, of, as an alcoholic. Uh, so it is actually fascinating to me how he managed his loss to turn it around and have the sect believe that it was stolen. It, I mean, it's, it's quite, quite remarkable. It's, uh, now, now, here's what you call, uh, some people talk about the dark triad, but I don't believe in the dark triad. I believe in the dark diet because they talk about Machiavellianism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism. But Machiavellianism is part of the is part of the other two, so I think it's artificial to. Uh, so I talk about the dark diet and this combination of psychopathy and, and and narcissism is the worst form of narcissism. We all are narcissistic. It's all a question of degree. And without narcissism, you know, cannot function properly. But uh, what you see often in organizations is this, uh, this unfortunate marriage between uh, disposition towards narcissism and position. You know, you get into the position and then funny things start to happen because you start to be surrounded by people who uh, suck up to you. Uh, in the case of Trump, it became so crazy that every meeting he had, people had to tell him he was the greatest. I mean, it was it's bizarre. It's surrealistic. And of course, they did it. Not they believed in it, many of them. They did it because they, I mean, you smell the roses. In this case, the power and whatever, the money and other things they could see. They, they conformed to that because they knew you have to use him, otherwise you get fired. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's scary. And, uh, and that's one of the major problems with uh, executives. It's hubris, which means uh, that you have to find a way to tease those people out before it's too late before they have a real powerful position. And unfortunately, uh, psychopathic people have a great capacity for mimicry. And I don't, don't you love to hear you know, what you want to hear? You know, they tell you what you want to hear. You know, it becomes a delightful person, delightful conversation. And the ones who don't get that kind of conversation are the people below them. So that's the reason 360s are sometimes useful. Because you, you can quickly recognize uh, you know, toxic people in an organization. In a way, you know, when you look at a simple matrix of two by two, you have a healthy organization, a sick organization, healthy person and a sick individual. And you, know, you can see all different permutations. What very often happens when you look at another two by two matrix, one is results and one is values. So bad results, bad values out. No, 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 no hesitation. They have high results, high values, the goodies, the goodies. Then you have uh, good values, but mediocre results. 
development is needed. Coach, you know, get a coach. Maybe you will get, you get better at certain things. But the problem cases are the people who have high results and don't live the values. And people let them sit there for you because they bring in the results. And in the meantime, they're toxic. And so you have to, as a leader, you have to make up your mind. And then, uh, of course, psychopaths also the habit that they take credit for the work of others. So they're very good in uh, exploiting people, which adds to this kind of uh, uh, messy, messy situation. So, and, and, and as far as cure is concerned, I, forget it, forget it. I mean, there's, there's this famous hair test of Mr. Hare. You know, if you pass the test, you know, lock yourself up and throw the key away because uh, psychotherapy is not going to help or you know, whatever. They've actually seduced the psychotherapist, think it's, uh, it's you know, whatever it might be. They're very good in that. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily believe in the psychopathic gene, but there might be something wrong with the receptors, the emotional receptors in the brain. You raised something there that uh, is so common where oftentimes leaders know about the narcissist, the malignant narcissist or the psychopath in their midst, but they keep them or they actually hire them on purpose. And there's a great, I, I use this metaphor, I, I'd love to share with you. It's called the black walnut effect, I call it. The, there's this tree called the black walnut tree. And it's a big, magnificent tree. But to grow big and magnificent, it releases a toxin called juglone. And juglone kills all the vegetation around it. <laughs> and I, I thought actually, that's exactly what what these people are. And that that moves nicely to narcissists, because you tell us not all narcissists are created equally, and that the literature on narcissism is mixed. While many people express some narcissistic tendencies, fully fledged narcissistic personality disorder NPT is less common. According to one study, you mentioned 6.2% of the general population have experienced NPD in their lifetime, all men, the majority men. Yeah, that's actually coming back to uh, leadership in the pandemic. Uh, the, uh, it's actually an excursion, but has been quite a peeve of mine that um, I think, I mean, and it was before I already was mentioning that before the whole Me Too movements came up, most women have had some bad experiences. And that uh, has created, you know, the notion of vulnerability, uh, compassion, empathy. Of course, you can say, of course, they are women that can do one thing, men can just give birth, and you have this whole oxytocin, thing, or the love hormone, and things like that. But still, it has to do with vulnerability. And uh, the, I think it's an important role of good leaders to uh, then need to show empathy and compassion. And uh, just you know, having a testosterone kick, you know, this kind of an addictive thing, uh, and it very quickly becomes a very selfish orientation. But coming back to your narcissism comment, I once wrote something about constructive and destructive narcissism. And as I said just before, that uh, narcissism is actually the, uh, the motor which for achievement. The question is how to keep it in, 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 uh, in control. You, can, you have also mentioned dictators. I wrote a Swiftian article, uh, you know, well-known about Ireland. He wrote it, Ireland, the Swiftian article about what to do with the Irish. So <laughs> it was quite, quite terrible. Uh, I wrote something about uh, something, we should have more leaders for life. Now, the moment you have a leader for life, 
red flag should come up. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote it very sarcastically. Uh, in the center was this leader of Turkmenistan who had all those statues of himself and whatever. But it's the moment that you look, look at Xi and look at Putin, uh, it becomes, you get a sense of entitlement. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, the, I can see that in a uh, stressful situation, crisis situation, you cannot just sit around the campfire and discuss what needs to be done for hours and hours on end. Uh, so you need some decisiveness, but uh, you always need countervailing powers, which has to do with the judiciary. You see it in Europe now, uh, what's happening in countries like Hungary. Hungary is a good example of, uh, you know, you start, who's not living the values of the European Union, and, uh, and well, only taking advantage of the financial goodies that come with it. And so uh, I think the... Uh, the prime minister of Holland, in a subtle way, told him to get the hell out of the union. Actually, that's what he said. We don't. Why do you want to be in the union except for money? If you don't uh, lift the values and, uh, and so what? What I'm trying to say: you need independent judiciary, and very importantly, what's also not the case in Hungary, press the press, an independent press. And of course, in America, I can ask yourself about the Murdoch family who had an incredible control of public opinion. The same thing can say sometimes about you know, the people who have been advocating Brexit, which of course is, is, is self-harm. It's self-harm with all the, you know, all the lies which are going on there by, by uh, the leadership in the UK. But anyhow, I don't want to go there. I get quite excited about it because I have two children living in, in London and it bothers me. It bothers me to have this kind of situation because it's so stupid. Because they forget one major thing. Why was the European Union there? The main reason is not financial, or mainly indirectly financial. No more war. Think about all the war which were in Europe and the millions and millions of lives it cost to have a better understanding. And things like the Erasmus scholarships, which was you know, the exchange of students, it stopped for the British. It's, it's sad. It's sad. I think it's, the whole thing is very sad. It's self-harm for the next generation. And if, you know, in the sense of basically coming back to what happened also in uh, the United States and Trump, nostalgia for certain things which cannot be. And uh, I mean, France, of course, I think I'm I come from a whole small country. We had the golden age, but we are not nostalgic about it. Maybe you can see some paintings in the, in the museum and see some of the paintings, but otherwise we are not blowing that away. I feel the same about the politics, but I thought we'd speak through the organization uh, and reflect the organization into... But the thing is, I've been, the, the reason is that I, I get so irritated about demagogic-like leaders, and there have been so many lately. And, and then I get, of course, irritated about uh, you know, un, uh, people who uh, just step into those traps uh, over and over again. I mean, and, 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 and let them be seduced. I mean, it is uh, not, not realizing that uh, it's not easy always, by the way, because uh, in they are uh, they're good snake oil salesmen. And, uh, and we always have to wish to believe. One of the ways you helped me understand that I mentioned about your empathy for the reader was um, the two stories. One was J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, because that power of the ring and that that can intoxicate people who, who go into the role. Actually, you know, 
they're middle of the road people. They may not be really great people, but they that power intoxicates them. That's one. And the other then is the empathy for the leader, which is the sword of Damocles. The uh, the ring, of course, it comes from I think it was Plato's story. Uh, that's where where, where uh, the story of Tolkien came from. And you know, what would you do? And you ask us, what would Socrates do if you find that ring? Would you relive your values, or you uh, you know, it's such it's such a such seductive. The person who got the ring there, he found the ring. The shepherd, the shepherd found the ring. And basically what he did after he got the ring, he seduced uh, the queen of the country and killed the king without anybody knowing it, that he killed the king. You can do so many things. And so, of course, Socrates sticks to his values. That was his particular, that if you're a value-based person, but it's very seductive. So the question, of course, is one of the reasons people come to my seminars, they want to have a little more balanced lifestyle, but often it's late, late in the game. And can they make enough reparation? Can they get closer to the children? They probably, they might be divorced and all those kinds of things might have happened because of their... On the other hand, it, it, you know, it's like with, with your children. You, know, you, you want them to be successful, but you want them to be happy. And how to manage that in a proper way? That's, it's very... So, you know, happiness, I mean, there are lots of very happy people in the code as you, I can tell you. If they, uh, of course, if they have meaning, coming back to my meaning, that's another story. So the, it's 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 a delicate trade-off. You want to provide meaning to your children. And I, I do a lot of work with family businesses. And uh, to if you want the family business to continue, you better start very early. It's not, uh, and what often happens, of course, when you're an entrepreneurial type, which I've met, by the, you make a lot of money, as you said, there's lots of sacrifice, and then you want to make up. So first the children get get a, a, a kind of teddy bear, then they get a Porsche, and they they but they don't have the right values, and that's the problem. I got so much from the book. Firstly, you know, it's twenty five chapters. They're all essays, and they all do as you promise. And I'm sure you do with your leadership. They make you think. And you know, I I live by this saying, and it's why I do what I do. It's why I do this show. It's why I write. Is that when you change what you think, what you think changes, or if you change what you see, what you see changes, because those new thoughts absolutely change your worldview, you mentioned lenses, you see the world totally different. But I wanted to link it to innovation, because it's one of these thoughts that sprung to mind. And I'm sure you've worked with a lot of organizations, driving change initiatives, 75% of which fail. And you said, you, you said that I sometimes say 70% to be more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's more than 75%. They're the ones who tell us it fails. But uh, given this is what you say, and, and this jumped out, and I'm sure it will to our listeners, given what we know about power's addictive nature, in situations where leaders hold a great deal of power, we shouldn't expect leadership transition to be a smooth process. Most people find it extremely hard to quit a powerful position. The world is full of examples demonstrating how difficult it is for leaders to let go. And I thought also then about this issue with family businesses that you mentioned. But I share that because we see it in innovation and change initiatives all the time. Leaders are full of rhetoric about change and the need to change. But when it means personal change to them, the status quo often prevails. There's lots of written also on onboarding and things like that. I wrote recently a little article about offboarding. I mean, and one thing 
the idea was some executives who are, you know, we have more, we live longer, so we have more portfolio careers. But I think one of the things one should be worried about in your work is board CEOs. Board CEOs are dangerous. They're dangerous because they 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 very easily seduced by investment banks and consultants to start doing the use of the Pac-Man game, you know, I should use buy and things like that to get some excitement in the system. So, you know, you have a life cycle as a, you know, you can be innovative. You are brought in because you have to clean up a mess somewhat. You may be brought in as a transformational leader, but after you've done that, uh, you know, maybe you should get out. I, I actually developed once a questionnaire called the Leadership Architect Questionnaire, which was a result of some consulting work I did for a very successful bank. And I was saying that people play different roles. Now, leadership is a team sport. So what are the roles you play? One is, you know, you, some people are really change makers. They're very good in that. Some, uh, they, they really, they like transformation. Some people make deals. I had one person, it was a joke, a deal a day keeps the doctor away. He needs to make deals. But after that, he was hopeless. At the time, I think we suggested that it was a director of McKinsey was put behind him to put, put things into place. So some people have to have the, the trains run on time. Some people are good coaches. I remember once working with another organization where the person was not a strategist. That was not a thing, but he was an excellent coach. He knew, he knew the top 50 people. He knew a lot about them. The top 100, he knew he knew most of them. So he was continuously balancing his portfolio of people. So other people are innovators, which I think... Many innovators don't fit in organizational life. You know that. And they are very delicate plans. They have to be watered all the time. And organizations don't give left, don't, don't allow for that. So they basically, you might, that's the reason, look at pharmaceutical firms. Much of the innovation comes from outside. They buy it because they, have, they don't have it inside. They're too much involved in having the trains run on time, processes. And so you have, and some people are very great communicators. Now that's what that's such things, but it's a, it's a, it's and it's it's a package, and so you have as a leader, you have to see okay, what how do you how how do how I'm a designer of this team of people how do you get the best out of this team of people, because I I you know this this thing about the great leaders is usually a man, man standing on top of the pyramid, it, it's ridiculous. Also, this I have written also that book you were referring to about. The insanity of the pay scales. It's obscene. That is, the, he do it all alone? It can just be the economy. Thank you very much. He's just, uh, he's, he's a passenger in the bus. The bus is going in the right direction. And so the economy is doing very well. But I mean, you see now, quote uh, Warren Buffett, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And many of those people have been swimming. I mean, again, coming back to Trump and Bolsonaro, I mean, they have been swimming very, very naked. And also Boris Johnson. I mean, now he's, of course, he's got a lot of, you know, of pomp and circumstances, but he has been swimming naked also quite a bit. I heard a great line. Uh, you love this man because of your, your, like, your love for nature. Any turkey can fly in a storm. So they can all fly because the tornado is going. But when it settles down, it's like they all hit the deck. Um, I've, I've two more questions for you. One is based on the organization itself. And then there's the epitaph question, which I think is a fitting way to finish. But first, it's your beautiful term, the authentic, authentic organization. So finally, yeah, <laughs> I love this. I love this. So based on many decades of your experience in consulting with global C-suite executives and organizations, you offer this 
your observations on how to create high-performing organizations in which people can be their best and give their best. I love even how you phrase that. And you call these organizations authentic, exotic organizations. Beautiful name. I'll hand it over to you. I made up the name. It's from two Greek words, authenticos and zoticos. Basically, organizations where you feel alive. And, and when you think about the uh, Gallup polls, about people engagement, something like 85% of people don't feel engaged. So they really work in gulags. It's terrible. I mean, uh, I mean, we think about if you could turn that around. So one of the roles in my life uh, is basically it's a fantasy. I mean, for example, the seminar I come back to, probably uh, the, this year, uh, maybe 100,000 people. They, they have a responsibility for 100,000 people. If I can... If you know, if I can make that group a little bit more effective, maybe it has a trickle effect. You know, that's uh, and when you talk about authentic sort of organization, uh, I, I, I I tell you an anecdote. I was once uh, I flew to Denmark and uh, I was picked up by a taxi and I had to go to a certain company. He said, "Are you?" He said, uh, "Are you going to Company X?" The taxi driver said, "I love to work for Company X. I love it. My my brother worked there. My father used to work there." I would love to work there. So the, the, the asset test of an authentic sort of organization is, I mean, I have lots of terms. I have a whole description of it and whatever I wrote about it. But the asset test to simplify things is, do you want your friends and family to work in that company? That's the asset test. And most time when I ask that, the people said no, no. But that is really the asset test because it's a great place to be there. And if you have such a great company, you know, you don't have to do much recruitment. It's, it's, it's word of mouth. And, and, and in general, I remember years ago, I wrote once a case study about Richard Branson of Virgin. And he had a very simple philosophy, I remember. He said, you know, I want happy people working for me because happy people will smile at their customers. That was at the time he said that. So, and it's true. That's it's a very simple recipe. If you have, if you, the people feel happy in their workplace, it's unless they are masochist, it's more likely that they will work better, harder, whatever. It's a beautiful term, and, and I highly recommend people read Man Manfred's work. Any of them, you know, any of them, they're they're all uh, so enlightening. But I, I wanted to end with the fitting end, <laughs> which is the epitaph question. I thought it was a, a great way to finish this wonderful chat. Um, and I, I loved this. So it is said that Alfred Nobel made the decision to institute his famous prize after after reading about his purported death in a French newspaper that missed close by here. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought I saw the irony of that. So it, it mistook him for his brother in Cannes that he died. And the article carried this headline, imagine this being you, the merchant of death is dead. And I often heard this term and I, and I really am very conscious of this myself. If our character is measured by what people say when we're not in the room, <laughs> Then an epitaph like that says a hell of a lot about you, and you you suggest this is something we should all think about. And I thought it was a great way to finish today's chat. You don't want to be the richest person in the graveyard, you know. That's uh, and it's uh, you know you see, of course, you know. When you look at some of I was on a panel recently of the BBC, and uh, it was about uh, the super rich, not just the rich, the super rich. And uh, the last question, which was not aired because it was cut out, which was uh, was the question. Um, at least my answer wasn't aired. Uh, 
Peter Trump said. <laughs> There'll be no editing here, by the way, Manfred. There'll be no editing. It's all going out. I, I, I once was on a dissertation at Harvard of, uh, uh, you know, the about uh, temporary temporary organizations, and of course, in film crew is a temporary organization. And it, it depends if you're what kind of director you are. Are you are you an Hitchcock or an Arthur Penn? If you're a Hitchcock, you're a set designer. You don't waste any meter of film. If you were a pen, start a pen, five cameras are running, and you could self-actualize completely. But are you going to be in the film? Who knows? Anyhow, the question was very simple. On simple, if you would have hundred billion dollars, what would you do with it? And I made a comment which was uh, discouraged by my wife. I would educate women, and she said you have to educate men also because. But it's it's really it's really true. It all has to coming back to. When you talk about uh, uh, the wish to believe and things like that, it all has to do with education. That's uh, and that's what has been my goal in life. When you talk about, uh, I uh, since I got so bored when I was at university in Holland, I uh, I try to be an entertaining entertainer, whatever you might call it. I try to keep people alive uh, doing, uh, but uh, and because that's the way when I listen to my children and grandchildren. They learn from good teachers, and so that's 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 for him. teachers who stimulate them, and that's what. Uh, so that's one thing. It's that's in, when you talk about my appetite that he was a stimulating teacher, and uh, and create some tipping points for some people, who might make them a little bit uh, more effective. And also, I always love the statement I see as Margaret Mead about what a group of committed people can do, how they can change the world, if you're really committed to something. So coming back to my little seminar, of course, I do a lot of other things. Uh, that, but, you know, if I can change those people, it might have a little effect, small as it might be, on creating some of the better world, which we need, given when, we, uh, when I look at the day's news and the different newspapers I read, you don't get always a happy feeling. I pulled a quote that I'm going to finish on. But before I do that, where can people find you and find out more about the Cats de Vries Institute, etc.? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. You For the Cats de Vries Institute, you, you, you type in Cats de Vries Institute in Google. <laughs> and for me, you, you you can go to LinkedIn or something like that and type in Cats de Vries. It's not, it's not rocket science. Actually, after I, I got this article from Lunch with the FT, uh, which was one of my surprise lunch, which, uh, as I said, the person focused on my uh, political incorrect activities like hunting wild boar or so. And I, was, I couldn't defend myself because I was trying to explain you know, it's, you know, how to get an equilibrium, you know, in nature equilibrium. That's not, but that's the whole story itself. And then, of course, the, the Holocaust, why, how it influenced me. Uh, I mean, uh, I got 500 emails after that. Not from people who were against that, it was all positive, I must admit. Maybe negative ones controlled themselves, but it was uh, not so. And, and I'm a very religious person, meaning I answer my email. Very good. Although I, in, the, in the book, The CEO Whisper, which I have here, I, 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 it's an introduction, I say something about that I see myself sometimes as a combination of Dear, Dear Abby, and there was this column in the newspaper, Dear Abby. And the Jerry, the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> I get the craziest emails. And sometimes I feel like you probably don't know that cartoon figure, Mr. Magoo. Oh, I do, yeah. yeah I who's talking around to say, what the hell is, you know, what right. the hell, like Alice in Wonderland, too. what the hell is going on? 
Try to make sense out of various things. <laughs> well, well, I pulled a quote, and and maybe I'll ask you just after this quote, just your final message for people working in organisations after this. So I love this. There was so many, but I thought this would be a nice one to finish with. You say that hope can bring light in the surrounding darkness, as the great novelist Dostoevsky put it: "To live without hope is to create is to cease to live." What these dystopian tales teach us is that when we join together, inspired by the hope for a better future, we will have a chance of survival. Only by working together can we set everything to rights. We should remind ourselves that big things tend to have small beginnings. If we take life one day at a time, we can handle just about anything. If each of us takes a small step every day toward making things better, we may eventually get where we want to be. I absolutely love that. What about you, your final message for our audience? I sometimes, I wrote once a little book on happiness. I was quite depressed when I wrote that. You have to be depressed. Uh, Bertrand the author was also depressed when he wrote on happiness. I think it must be a pattern. Uh, and um, and I, I think the theme of that book was, and it's not original, um, it's, it, it's uh, I don't know exactly who was the first one who said, so it might be Immanuel Kant or it was a Chinese proverb. But happiness is something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. And actually, it's quite profound when you think about it. Author of multitude of books, including the focus of today's show, Down the Rabbit Hole of Leadership, Leadership Pathology in Everyday Life, Manfred Ketz de Vries. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot.